Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognize the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? This is part two and the conclusion of my conversation with Julian Warshiel Colette, and I'm thrilled to share it with you. He shares his perspective on how professional therapy has positively affected his life and recites some of his writings, which can be found on his blog, Peregrine Adoptee. Allow me to introduce to you for the first time or again to Julian, who bears his soul in part one and here so that we can get a better understanding of how he has managed his relinquishments and adoptions in childhood over the last 51 years. Julian, I get to see you again this week on yeah, Zoom. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're coming back to talk a little bit more about something that's pretty big deal to me um, as it relates to therapy and sure. the impact professional therapy with the therapist has been in your life. But before we do that, I just kind of want to recap on last Saturday when we were doing part one. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we covered so much. When we talked about your experience with Adoptive Voices, and then just kind of going back to things you had done early in your life, like the bike touring and living in monasteries and being a monk, and now married to Lisa and living at a monastery. Like we covered so much. Yeah. And it really made me think about how it does take a lot of experiences and ups and downs and twists and turns till you really kind of lean into what's working. And I really mm. appreciate how you shared so much about the things that have gone on for like 30 plus years. Yeah. 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 You shared yeah. so much. And it all falls under what I think you talked so well about, which is spirituality. Is there anything you wanted to say further before we go on to another topic? You know, I probably have more to say, but I think that might come out in the course of what we talk about. So nothing, nothing off the cuff. Okay. But I'm sure the topic will, will come up again. And I just want to thank you again for reading the two pieces. Sure. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And so I know that you're planning to read more pieces today. You told me the one that may be most fitting to lead us into 
the subject of therapy. The nothing place searching for mother. The nothing place searching for mother. Do you want to start by reading that or do you want to read it a little later? We can start. I feel like it's something that needs a, a little preface, though. I originally wrote a piece called The Nothing Place, and it was published in the first Adoptee Voices Easy. And the term The Nothing Place was something that my therapist and I coined in the course of working together. And so before I read this, I, I, I thought I you know, I was thinking like I need some way to convey what I mean by the nothing place. And instead of going back and reading from the, the first piece, one thing that came to mind, and we'll see if this works. Recently, I, I heard someone tell a story, not an adoptee that I know of. She went to a party and she took a lot of drugs. Later on that night, she finds herself walking the streets of New York City and she's had a psychotic break, basically. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know where she's going. She has no idea where she belongs. And as you can imagine, it was absolutely terrifying. And when I heard that, you know, I, I felt like something, I've never had a psychotic break, but something in that experience felt very familiar. Reflecting on it, to me, when I talk about the nothing place, it's almost like there is a part of me, this very foundational part of me that is in that state all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I've come from. I don't know where I belong. I don't have that knowledge inside of me and the world is not responding if I ask. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just that terrifying sense of being nowhere, no one, and just not being connected to the world. So I don't know if that, just to, as a way of conveying that, you know, to other people. Right. I felt yeah. that. I just felt that in your description. I mean, interestingly enough, when I wrote that piece, my therapist liked it so much that she shared it with a group of 50 adoptees that she co-facilitates. I got some amazing responses. I mean, it really resonated with people. It, 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 it surprised me how, just how much I, I seem to have touched on something that it may be fairly universal for adoptees, naming, naming an experience of just radical, a, a sense of radical estrangement. Right. You know, somehow... We never, we somehow, you know, we, we live, we develop relationships, we, we do all kinds of things, we have lives. But at some fundamental level, there's that part of us that never seems to attach. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what I mean when I speak of the nothing place. It, it sounds like that hit you. It, it did. <laughs> it's got me thinking how many times have I felt that and maybe yeah. wasn't aware of what I was feeling. Right. Right. Well, it's been there since, you know, since we were relinquished. Right. So in a way we're, you know, we're, we've grown around that experience. We've adapted to it. Yeah. A lot of adaptation going on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. The nothing place searching for mother. I start out with a, a quote from Albert Einstein. 
the most important question a person can ask is, is the universe a friendly place? Yesterday, I went to the beach and felt the hypnotic allure of the immensity of the ocean stretched before me. I was struck by the paradox of feeling so insignificant amidst the vastness of life. It's so significant in the mysterious privilege of inhabiting my own unique, intimate part of the whole. I grew quiet as I listened to the wonder, longing, and anxiety of my heart and articulated these feelings as questions I silently prayed to the universe. Am I safe? Do I belong? Can I trust? Am I home? Can I let go? As someone abandoned by three mothers, one biological and two adoptive, my life has been marked by the relentless search for mother. Fundamentally, this search is a spiritual quest. After all, from whom are we first meant to learn that the universe is safe, welcomes and responds to us and our needs and hungers, lovingly includes us, invites us to let go and trust that we are held, that we are at home, if not our mothers. Because I lack this primal experience of maternal welcome, cherishing and holding, and worse, because I inhabit the nothing place, the urgency and challenge of this quest is amplified a hundredfold. At root, my body doesn't know how to surrender and trust. At root, letting go of the thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and images that constitute my sense of self can feel like a life-threatening descent into annihilating chaos. And yet I must press on, always interrogating, always seeking. Is it safe for me to exist, to simply be? Am I meant to be here? Can I trust you, trust me, trust life? For me, the occupational hazard of being a spiritual seeker in the nothing place has been this persistent, compelling attraction of spiritual bypassing because the world seems to offer so little nourishment, because I can feel so radically excluded from the world, I have often sought refuge from the world and the concerns of ordinary life in spiritual pursuits. For instance, when I learned to meditate in my early 20s, I wasn't satisfied with integrating meditation into the life I was already living. Rather, I had to make meditation a life choice in itself by living in meditation centers and monasteries. Whatever authentic aspirations lay behind these decisions, in hindsight, I have no doubt that in spending hours, days, and weeks on a meditation cushion, I was fleeing from the world that baffled, overwhelmed, and intimidated me. I felt completely incompetent to enter the stream of life in a satisfying way in the constant rub of relationships, work, and the need to make committed decisions, especially when I had never experienced being valuable enough to someone to be worthy of their commitment. I floated through life, utterly untethered. Meditation and spiritual practice at least held out the hope that, 
if I couldn't find myself in the world, I could possibly find relief from the ceaseless press of suffering and futility by going within. But I was wrong. The unbearability of the nothing place lies not only in that the world feels unreachable, unattainable, but that reaching out in itself feels transgressive. I was not wanted, therefore, who am I to want, to need? How dare I burden the world now by reaching out for help, companionship, belonging, purposeful engagement? As if there is an invisible border between me and the world, and my attempts to cross it are met with the threat of the fiercest of punishments, total, humiliating, crushing abandonment. Yet there is no way forward, no way to wholeness, belonging, and safety, to a sense of home, without making the perilous journey across this border. At times in my work with Pam, my therapist, I have felt the presence of this border and literally have to stop and ask her, is it really okay for me to need you? Surely I must be too much for you? Surely you must think I am disgusting, repulsive in my need? Can you really want me, care about me? Am I pushing you away? Do you already have one foot out the door? A nauseating spiral of doubt that can feel like drowning in an abyss. As frightening as this can be, the path to healing in the nothing place is precisely learning to enter this borderland between me and the world, this consuming wound of no attachment, to learn to sustain powerful feelings of shame, hunger, rage, and terror, and most importantly, to give these feelings voice and expression and receive a nurturing response in a safe, loving relationship. In this way, I begin to integrate the vital parts of me that got left behind, that couldn't live, couldn't enter the world without a mother. As I allow myself to be accompanied in these places of terrifying vulnerability, I finally begin to experience the world as safe, welcoming, trustworthy, as home. Through this deepening person-to-person -person trust in the places that hurt the most, I begin to unravel the suffocating tension in my body that inhibits me from surrendering to the loving intelligence I still believe births, sustains, unifies, and indwells all that is. I haven't given up on the spiritual quest, only updated my understanding of what makes for real growth and maturity. Today, I know of nothing more fulfilling or terrifying and working through my earliest attachment wounds with a wise, compassionate therapist. I know there is no direct path to the Divine Mother, to spiritual surrender that bypasses healing within flesh and blood relationships. Thankfully, today I am not only searching, but finding. Wow. So good. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> So while you were reading that, I remember us having a conversation about you being ready to be cared for. I've repeated that many, many times to myself mm. and asked myself that question, am I ready? Because I just recently found a therapist. So I'm like so excited to finally yeah, 
be ready to care for myself and to be cared for. So when you said that, I thought that is really it. That's spot on. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I don't, I don't remember saying that, but it does fit. Yeah. Like some weeks ago when we talked, I forget exactly how it started, but I know you were telling me about having your therapist and that you had, at some point, you were ready to be cared for through therapy. Yeah, I was definitely ready. I was definitely in a place of readiness in a different way than I I had been in the past. I've had several therapists. And, and to be honest, I hadn't found them very helpful. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, I'm thinking of the therapist I had before Pam, and it was about three or four years ago. And interestingly, I i mean, this is before I really learned about mm, uh, adoption and relinquishment trauma. So you could say I was still in the fogs to some extent. To me, like looking for an ado- a quote-unquote adoption-competent therapist simply mean meant finding a therapist who had adoption listed in their uh, profile in in their in their psychology today profile and I that was it I didn't know to ask any other questions I didn't really know what it meant right so I went to see this therapist and it also coincided with my my search and reunion so on one level she was helpful with that like in terms of processing uh, my search and reunion but what I find most interesting in hindsight was that my first visit to her, I came into her office and I sat down and my body just, oh, I felt this sense of like, oh my God, like I'm so, I so need to be here. I have so much to unburden myself of. And it caught me off guard and I was kind of speechless and I just sat there tearing up. It was a very powerful experience. So there was a real need there, right? Mm-hmm. But once we started working together, we never found our way back to that place. I didn't know how to go back to that place. And she didn't know how to go back to that place. In hindsight, I would say that it was just just how painfully alienated I've been all my life. Mm. And just all of that welling up, all that pain, all that grief and vulnerability welling up. But I didn't really know what it was at the time. I didn't know how to name it clearly. Um, It's hard to access for me. And I don't think she understood. I don't think she understood the depth of attachment trauma that that I held. So we just kind of went on. You know, after church and reunion, after all of that had kind of settled, I found myself asking, her and and me, like, I want to go deeper. Like, I I want to address my trauma, but but I don't know how to do that. Like, help me. And she didn't know, like, we just didn't know. There was just a sense of like, you know, I actually seem pretty okay. and, And we're not sure what else to do. And then abruptly, she moved out of state. And it was like, well, okay, that that's fine by me, because I don't really see any point in continuing. And quite tellingly, I didn't have any strong feelings about her leaving. She left. We worked for together for about a year and she left and I didn't have any feelings about it. I hardly gave her a second thought. So there was no attachment for me. 
with her. Right. You know, I, I wanted to do this intimate work and I couldn't find my way in and she didn't seem to know how to help me. Did you know immediately I got to find somebody else? Mm-mm. So let's see. About, I guess it would have been about an, another year and a half. I had that experience that I talked at the beginning of the last episode where I had heard this story of a failed adoption. It, it pierced me to the heart. So again, I was in a different place. I was like, wow, I've got to do something because I, you know, I don't know what I need to do, but I carry so much pain from my childhood, from my, my adoptions. And so the first thing I did, I found the Adoptees On podcast. Pam, my therapist, is a frequent guest on that podcast. Right. So that's how I got to know her, which was that was was a tremendous benefit. Like, I got a sense of who she is as a, as a person. I got to know her a little bit as a therapist, even before you know reaching out to her. I was just really drawn to her. I I just had this sense that if anyone can help me, she can help me. Mm, right? right. So I. And, and at that time, too, I was learning very quickly more about relinquishment trauma, the, the, all, you know, all the issues that, that adoptees face. So I had that going in. So, I, you know, I had more knowledge. I had reached, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say a level of desperation, but close to it. Like I was determined. Like I was not going to settle for mediocre therapy. Right. And... I had found someone that I really wanted to work with, that I was ready to work with, even before I met her. So yeah, I, within a couple of weeks of finding Adoptees On, I contacted her, and we started working together immediately. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I had an opportunity to hear Pam on Adoptees On, and I can see that, like if I was in California, I'm pretty, yeah. pretty sure I'd be looking her up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started working with Pam, uh, which, you know, this was during the pandemic. So, you know, it was over Zoom. It was uh, immediately, it was such a radically different experience than any of my other experiences with therapists. Mm. Part of it was, hmm, I have to go back there. Part of it was definitely knowing immediately that she saw me that she understood that, you know, she wasn't going to leave, you know, I, I felt like more of my previous therapist kind of left me in my pain. Like she couldn't meet me there. She couldn't, she, she didn't even seem to see it. Pam knew, Pam saw. Mm. And it was such a, it was such a powerful experience. Mm. And to be honest, I mean, it was, it was kind of explosive, like from the get go, I was, all of that, all of what wanted to come to the surface with my previous therapist just started spilling out of me. I would just be having these feelings of terrible terror. I mean, kind of what I wrote about in that piece, just all of this terror and shame and emotional hunger and rage. And it was so confusing because here I am, an adult relating to an adult. It's like, well, who is Pam? Like, why? You know, why? Suddenly I feel terrified of her. I feel enraged with her. I'm starved for attention. Like, what is going on? And who am I? 
Like, am I, am I a baby? Am I a child? Am I an adolescent? Like the, just the, the level of transference and regression was just so intense. It sounds like parts of yourself were... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, were expressed. Totally. Again, like all these parts of me that I've been, that have kept, been hidden or that I've suppressed... Uh, just suddenly came bounding <laughs> yeah. onto the playground. And again, I, I can appreciate my body's wisdom in the sense that like, I really needed to wait until I, ha- I, I was with the right person in the right context. And where I had in myself the resources to undergo all of this. But it was so profound. I, I, I think as tumultuous as it was, there were just moments of feeling met, feeling met in these places where I felt such profound aloneness. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I'm not alone. It was so, I mean, wow. Yeah. Did that happen like right away or did that take time? I mean, it's changed over time for sure. We've been working together for about an, a year and a half. Yeah, I would say pretty soon we really did jump into the deep end. And I think part of it was where where I was on my journey. Like I was like, I would again, I wouldn't settle for less. Like I'm jumping into the deep end, whether you're coming with <laughs> me or not. And thankfully she joined me. Right, right. Yeah, things got pretty intense pretty quickly. And again, just to just to underline what a what a profound contrast that was. Pam and I found our way into that place of vulnerability that I could not find my way into either on my own or with other therapists or other people. So it was a real breakthrough. And it was it happened very soon. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I hear she's an amazing therapist and timing plays a major part too yeah because like you say you were just you were ready you were in a place to meet Pam (laughs) yeah right in preparation for this conversation I don't know if you've seen the the Paul Sunderland talk addiction and adoption no yeah he's a British psychologist and he's a I think he's a primarily an addiction counselor But he talks of how he got interested in working with adoptees. He was working in a treatment center, so he'd be working with all of these addicts. And he just happened to notice that there was a disproportionate number of adoptees who would would show up. And he took an interest in that, and he started asking, like, well, what's going on here? And furthermore, he, he noticed something very curious, that on the surface, the adoptees looked pretty good. They presented really well, right? Right. But when you gave them these, you know, these diagnostic tests, they would be off the charts in terms of like anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, you know, why this discrepancy? And so in the in the video, he talks about how, though for those of us relinquished as infants, like we don't know what it's like to live without trauma. We don't have a pre-trauma self. So our whole lives have been adapting to trauma. 
And because we have so much experience, we do it well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we look good. You know, a lot of us look good on the outside. Perhaps we don't even know what's what's on the inside. Right? I think part of it was like I come into therapy, I present well, I'm articulate, I'm very committed to inner work. I have a whole host of psychospiritual tools at my disposal. So I kind of, I look kind of good and I can do (laughs) therapy well, right? So, you know, it takes someone, I mean, it takes someone to know what's really going on for adoptees, you know, to to pierce that, to pierce that adaptive shell, right? And and that's what happened with Pam, because there was no hiding. I knew that. I knew that, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like I wasn't, I couldn't hide from her. I mean, I didn't need to. Yeah, that just the contrast was so profound. Yeah. Wow, what you just said there is that's big. I I I, I know we present well, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and when that happens, you can be overlooked. Yeah, you can. Right. Yeah, people think well, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, it's funny now. Now that you now that you say that, when you use that word "overlooked," of course that's a <laughs> that's a power that's a powerful word for an adoptee. But I think that that's how I. I mean, I as I'm talking, like I I feel a little bit of resentment toward that previous therapist for not being able to help, for not being able to see. I felt overlooked. The parts of me that needed her attention, that needed her help, were overlooked. And yet that experience was so familiar that when when it ended, when she's like, oh, I'm, I'm moving to Oregon, I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just keep living right. as I've lived all these years because I don't know what else to do. Right. Evidently you don't either. So, <laughs> you know. so Oh, yeah. goodness. Mm, I'm glad you shared yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I have definitely experienced that. Leaving really? a yeah situation and feeling like they didn't they didn't pierce anything because right. I present so well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though I felt like Pam and I jumped into the deep end right away, there was obviously a kind of a baseline of trust that allowed me to do that. But the actual building of trust and relationship took a lot of time. You know, it's especially complicated by the fact that going into these places of trauma, it's terrifying. I close these places for a reason, right? And so those parts of me are still operating at a very, how'd you say, kind of immature level, and they're terrified. And building trust, you know, letting someone in at that level and building trust takes time, even though I was able to let her in, in certain respects, very quickly. It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. (laughs) It's one thing to discover these things about ourselves. Writing definitely helps me, especially the kind of pieces that I read last week, where I'm really getting into my emotions very strongly. That's incredibly helpful. And articulating them, understanding them, kind of feeling my way around them and integrating them. But also, I I experienced this in therapy profoundly, and I also experienced it in writing group. It's another thing, it's a whole other level to bring these into relationship 
and not just any relationship, but relationships where people are like, ah, me too. That's what I wanted to ask you about. You said you received quite a bit of comments or feedback or me too from your piece that you read. Yeah. Did you? Or it wasn't that piece, but it was the first, the piece before it, which was just called The Nothing Place. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it was yeah. the first one. Yeah. So would you like to share some of the responses you got because it really resonated with with people? Yeah. The one comment that I remember, and to be honest, I'm not sure. It might have been to this one, the last one that I read, but it was definitely on the nothing place. One woman commented and said, you put words to my experience in a way that I never thought possible. Thank Mm. you. Mm. Some of the feedback that I got was quite profound. And And I have to say, that was a real turning point for me because I... I think you've seen this, but I, I carry a lot of shame, not just for being adopted once, but for being adopted twice. And so even, you know, even when I first entered the adoptee community, I still felt that I felt like I was still a black sheep. You know, I would say that the first nothing place piece that I wrote in some ways was one of the most vulnerable things that I, I wrote and I felt like I was naming some of my deepest pain and struggles, and I, and I put it out there. And the fact that when I did that, other adoptees, you know, of, of all kinds, you know, were like, wow, me too. You put words to my experience. It was so meaningful to me. I, I felt so mirrored. I think it helped me a lot in terms of feeling like this is my place, this is my community, and that maybe the fact that I'm twice adopted, if anything, it gives me a special insight into mm. the experience of adoption. And my ability to put words to that experience right. really reaches people. Right. So it, it's, it, you know, so it's healing and, and it's, it's a way of connecting. But I think that that first nothing place piece was a, was a turning point for me. Mm-hmm. I see that. I get that. Yeah. I remember when you first told me that you carried a lot of shame within the community, like, you know, like even with sitting with another adoptee. And I never thought about it until you said, mm. I'm glad you shared that because I, I never thought that that would be your experience, you, you know, your feeling. But when you explained it, I, I understand. And maybe that allows you to be able to to go deeper mm-hmm. and your words resonate with yeah. like all, all kinds of adopted people. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that was what, you know, what, one thing that Paul Sunderland, the a point that he kept reiterating in the video that I rewatched this morning was that uh, relinquishment is, it's a trauma that is remembered, but not recalled. Mm. Our bodies remember, right. we carry that memory in our body, but we can't recall it. So I've had that experience, but I've also had the experience of relinquishment and adoption. When I not only remember it, I can recall it. Right. So it's like I have these, you know, it's like, it's like layer upon layer. Yeah. And so when I pierce those layers in my writing, I see things. I know things. You know things. I put words to things that may be more difficult for 
for, for adoptees who don't have that, that dual experience. Yes. Wow, Julian. I just, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm learning so much from you, but it's, it's emotional intelligence I'm learning. Mm. Yeah, I feel it. I feel it in my body. Because when you said that in our last recording, you said my body knows, you know, and I right. have read, right. you know, I've read about how the body keeps the score and, and yeah. I believe that it's there. It's in my being all that I've been through. It's in there. And, yeah. and not being able to recall it. But you have had the experience in the second adoption to be able to recall it. Like, right. it's, yeah, that's. Mm. You know, yeah. to process it with a nine year old mind, emotions, yeah. body. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's a totally different experience. And yet, I think the echoes between the two are so resonant. You know, sometimes when I write, I mean, mostly if I write about adoption experientially, it's about my seven adoption, since that's the one I can recall. And yet there's a way in which I feel like I'm always writing about both. You know, right. it's almost like, it, you know, it's almost like it's a spiral and I just hit the same spot twice, mm. you know? Yeah. And I'm just thinking about how many adoptees you are helping with your writing. Yeah. So glad you have the blog and. Are you going to read another piece before yeah. we end our recording? Yeah, I wanted to read this piece. This is my latest piece, and it's I just submitted it to the Adoptive Voices e-zine, so it'll probably be published there. Oh, great. Yeah, I wanted to read this because I think it it shows some of the fruits of therapy. I mean, I kind of went into ooh, like all of what was uh, bubbling up has, you know, what we've been able to kind of be with and, and process. But this piece is about an incident where I had something of a breakthrough with Pam, and it simultaneously opened me up to Lisa, my wife, in, an, in a new way, in a very profound way. I wanted to read that just to give a sense of how therapy is helping me. This is called Heart Song, and the prompt was, what makes your heart sing? My heart sang the day I realized that I am truly in love with my wife, and she is in love with me, that our love has a tangible stability and density to it that I can trust. This happened two months ago, even though we've been married for almost eight years now. Bear with me, I'm adopted. My therapist and I recently experienced a crisis that touched us both. This was not a crisis between us per se, but involved someone we both knew and caused each of us to stress. I got scared as I tend to do. After a particularly challenging session with her, my hypersensitive alarm system went into overdrive and I was flooded with feelings, thoughts, and strategies of fight or flight. That evening, I went for a walk through the quiet suburban neighborhood where my wife and I were staying, beneath the glorious canopy of trees, but I could find no rest. I returned to our Airbnb and sat, just sat. 
I felt all the sensations churning in my body and watched my thoughts as they gradually began to settle down. Then, to my surprise, I noticed something else. I knew, not as a thought or idea, but as a real felt sense in my heart, that my therapist and I are okay, that we have a real ground of mutual trust, respect, care, and appreciation between us, and that this ground remains solidly intact regardless of the distress I feel. More than a glimpse, this felt like a breakthrough to a new level of insight. Then I got up and went about my business, and my alarm and alarmed thinking quickly returned. But no matter. I could not unlearn what I had just discovered. My heart has a mind of its own, if you will, and knows when I am securely attached. Over the course of the weekend, I toggled between these two states, between alarm and distress, and this quiet assurance of the heart, slowly learning to trust this newfound organ of knowledge. And that's not all. Simultaneously, I recognized a similar, albeit deeper, heart-knowing with my wife. I am secure with her. We are secure together. And she has been so clear and constant in her love for me that I almost cried with joy when I saw it. How did I miss this? Or at least miss the strength and solidity of her love? Like scales falling from my eyes, I perceived her in a new, less protected light with tremendous gratitude and a feeling of resonance. We fit, we blend, we shape one another to become more of who we are. I've harbored a fear all my life that if people knew the real me, knew how I suffered, what I endured as a child, and how much I struggle as an adult, they would leave. I'm too much. And I believed, projecting my own fear and shame, that I was too much for my wife, and so held parts of me back from her. Now I know. My alarm system can blare, insecurity sees me, but I know in my heart that there are no such barriers to her love, to our love. I've harbored a feeling of groundlessness all my life, that I am helplessly, hopelessly untethered from the earth, from other people. Now I know. Fear can pitch me to the point of vertigo, but I know in my heart that I am connected, seen, mirrored, valued. My heart sings of its own knowledge of love, longing, grief, and power. As I awaken to its song, and find my place, my voice in this world. That's beautiful, Julian. It's like an awakening that you had. It, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, on the on the surface, it, it felt very, you know, it, it wasn't very dramatic, and yet it was. I suddenly discovered that I have a capacity to be in relationship that I hadn't realized, or I'm just beginning to realize. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy for you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it works. It works. I, I, I <laughs> believe it works for sure. Yeah. 
So is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share? I don't know. Nothing comes to mind. Is there anything you wanted to ask me that you haven't asked? (laughs) That was good, Julian. That was good. Nobody's done that. (laughs) Well. They love responding to questions. Well, let me see. (laughs) I know this has just been an absolute joy for you to take the time. You know. Yeah, I I really appreciate all the time and energy you put into this. Well, really been great. Both ways, you know. I, I, I like it like that. I like to be in community. It's definitely bigger than a podcast for me. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, A lot of people. It's helping me, you know, like I go back to that quote, Mary Herbert, the storyteller. Let me get it right. Mary Herbert says that storytelling is healing for the listener mm-hmm. and the storyteller. And All and right. I just feel like it's a, it's both ways. It's that reciprocity, your word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that. And, and so I get as much, sometimes I think more, than a guest I, I do and certainly for you to take time this Saturday and last Saturday it just means a lot to me so I just want to thank you again and I hope to see you in Adoptive Voices again <laughs> no. I, I wish we didn't have to wait till the fall <laughs> yeah so yeah, yeah I um, I can't think of anything else right now but like you know we said uh, or you said earlier when we get off the phone, then we'll think of something. Or tomorrow afternoon, right. we'll think, you know, I could have said that. You know, I could have asked that. But it's a pleasure just to be in your company. Yeah. Yeah, I've totally enjoyed this. This has been really great, very life-giving. I enjoy hearing an author read their words. Not only did Julian agree to have a big conversation with me about his journey, but he said yes to reading some of his brilliant pieces for us. I know we mutually feel seen and heard during our time together, during part one and two. We thought you might benefit from experiencing what that looks like to us. One of the things that struck me as quite powerful when I asked Julian about a theme of his journey being letting go is his assessment of it being ambiguous. I really appreciate hearing that the deeper letting go is accepting that things go away. It is such a grounding and empowering way for me to now look at that. The exploration of spirituality is a never-ending journey towards being a better human being. I see that in Julian's quest as a seeker and student of a fulfilling life, he embraces the many ways to take the steps to grow and evolve. He becomes an extraordinary and amazing teacher in doing so. I often think of the different paths to arrive at a single destination. There's not necessarily a right or wrong, good or bad road, just different ones that work best at the time for a variety of reasons. It is likely that a deeper spiritual connection can accompany professional therapy. The two can and do walk hand in hand for the purpose of leaning into healing a wound or wounds. Thank you, Julian, for having many conversations with me. I have been touched on countless occasions with how you have bared your soul after unpacking and processing your experiences. There is an untold number of how many other adoptees have benefited from your words. We will likely remain in touch for a very long time 
if not forever, and for that, I'm deeply thankful. Having met you has already added to my spiritual walk of renewal and restoration. I high-five the personality in you with the one in me. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianegostin.com. Thank you for being here, and please check out my website for other episodes. Once upon a time in adopteeland.com.